Well, I trust that everyone this morning is well-rested and fully alert. Last Sunday, some people were nodding off. We had to zap a few people. But we have been working on our sound system, and I trust that uh, that won't be the case today. If you are not attending our first light hour, you are really missing a blessing. That was a great companion lesson this morning from the Adams for our message from Genesis 19. We hope that you would be able to join us at that time. We have a great variety of lessons there, and uh, you're really missing a blessing if you're not there with us. Now we're in Genesis 19, looking back toward the world. We'll get our introduction, and then we see the plight of the city of Sodom. They have made some bad choices, and now the consequences of those choices are coming to pass. The flight from destruction for our small group of escapees, Lot and his two daughters and his wife. And then the twilight of yearning. We won't always be yearning for the things of this world. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. The Bible is filled with promises. We know that. Someone has said over 1,100. I don't know if they have counted them all. But the world and its prince also offers us many promises. We are offered all kinds of things by the world. And we want to ask the question this morning, does the world really hold good on its promises? Because as we learned earlier, much investment is being made in those promises that the world and the prince of the world make. Many people are counting on an affirmative answer to that question. Does the world hold good on its promises? General John A. Sutter owned a large ranch in California. On January 24, 1848, a group of workmen were building a sawmill on the south fork of the American River on his land. And James Marshall, the foreman, found something in the tail race of the mill that caught his attention. It was a small stone, and he picked it up, and there were several others, and it had the appearance of gold. So he took off early the next morning to cover the 50 miles down to the fort, which was actually a frontier trading post where John Sutter was. And he very secretively came in and told him to get everyone else out of the house. And then he shared with him the news. Sure enough, it was gold. General Sutter thought about the news all during the night. Gold discovered on his land. What would it mean? Pure yellow nuggets that would probably make him literally the richest man on the Pacific coast. He was already suffering from a case of worldly-mindedness, what would this do for his condition? Wouldn't anybody be dreaming of the vast riches that would be afforded and all the pleasures that would go along with them? In James 2.23, we read these words, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. If Abraham was the friend of God, 
then I think we could say Lot was the friend of the world. We understand from Second Peter chapter 2 that Lot was a saved man. He had every opportunity to be afforded many of the spiritual blessings that his uncle Abraham received. But the scriptures seem to indicate a particular point at which he began to backslide toward the world. We've covered this several lessons back in Genesis 13 and verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they, that's Lot and Abraham, separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. Lot lifted up his eyes. I think this is the point at which he begins to walk by sight and not by faith, living for what the world had to offer. Notice that he began in a tent over uh, toward Sodom. In today's lesson, he's living in a house in Sodom, obviously one of the prominent citizens of the town. But at the end of the lesson, he is going to be found drunk, living in a cave up in the mountains. It doesn't look like the world is making good on the promises that at least it made to Lot. Someone might say, well, what's wrong with choosing the best property if you have the choice? That'd be the only prudent thing to do. Perhaps, except for one thing pointed out by Jeremiah Burroughs in 1649, a little book treatise on worldly mindedness. The choicest things of the earth have been and are the portion of reprobates. What about you? Will a reprobate's portion satisfy you? It did Lot. Sodom had a notorious reputation, and Lot would have known about it, but he chose to live there anyway. Now, the word mean, M-E-I-N, is an archaic word. It means appearance. Sin is a monster of such awful mean that to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar of face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Lot's wife didn't help him much, did she? She took one look at that tent, and she took a look at those country estates in Sodom, and she said, why, we will even have room here for all the flocks and the herds. You remember Lot was a rather wealthy guy in flocks and herds. So the city found a place in her heart, although the curse of the serpent was written all over the place. Now, here's an interesting commentary on Lot's life from the New Testament. We don't know if his wife were truly a believer, but we know that he was. How do you think he enjoyed the best of everything in Sodom while old Uncle Abraham was dwelling up in the hills in tents? Well, we find out about that in Second Peter chapter 2. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, 
having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. His soul was oppressed and tormented daily, living there in Sodom. Then why did he do it? That seems to be the logical question. I think his heart was anesthetized to spiritual things. He had chosen the best land despite the ungodly influences. He must have been using the movie selection criterion principle. The movie selection criterion principle. You have to tolerate some evil in order to enjoy some good. I think the Bible said abstain from all appearances of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Earthly things had become the treasure of Lot's heart. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. As we look through the story that we read this morning, it seems like Lot's heart and his wife's heart is back in Sodom. Through the years, I've observed some men who would make tremendous sacrifice of themselves and spiritual deprivation of their families in order to provide the finer things of life for their children. But by the time a son or daughter was 12 years old, it was obvious that the lifestyle was not encouraging the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But then it's very difficult to give that up. Once you get used to it, once it finds a place in your heart, I've seen some men uh, give it up and make a change for the betterment of their family but it's not like you can just go in one direction and all of a sudden you decide one day, hey, we're not, we're not moving toward the world anymore. We're going to be moving toward Christ. That can be done, but it's a very difficult thing to do. That's the reason it's so important that children grow up with right values, with understanding the promises God has to offer as weighed over against what the world has to offer. Abraham, a friend of God, was watching Lot's city burning in our text. What kind of a city do you think he had his heart set upon? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Those who are living for the spiritual reward can see on beyond the things of this earth. And they can utilize the things of this earth to invest for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Well, we come to the plight of Sodom in the first 11 verses When the angels arrived in Sodom, sometimes it calls them men and then sometimes angels. You remember one of them stayed with Abraham, and that was evidently an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ as the Lord kept talking to him. But they showed up at the city gate, and Lot was at the city gate 
That's where legal matters were adjudicated. That's where business transactions were made and completed. So it looks like uh, Lot has become an important man in the city. When he saw the angels, it's obvious that they must have been a little different from usual strangers that would be coming into town because Lot got up and he bowed low before them. Later that evening, Lot was going to be accused of being a judge of the people. So maybe it was he was a judge in the city. If he was a judge and he was exercising judgment, at least we know that much, why do you think the men of Sodom tolerated this holier-than-thou guy with his legalistic restrictions on anybody having fun in the city of Sodom? They had put up with that for some time now, it would appear. Do you remember what Abraham did for the men of Sodom? You remember Lot was captured by Chedorlaomer and the kings of the east, and Abraham set out with his trained men at night and recovered everything, Lot and all the men of Sodom that had been taken. And so perhaps they felt a debt of gratitude. Perhaps they would put up with a little of Lot's chiding during those times. But there's a time when the gratitude of the world runs out, and it had run out now for the men of Sodom. So the strangers came to town, and Lot bowed and asked them to come to his house, spend the night, typical hospitality. At first they refused, but then they said that they would. But that evening before the strangers went to bed, all the men of the city gathered around Lot's house. Now, in the New Testament, we're given a very important characteristic of those men who are up to wrongdoing and who want you to join in with them. We won't read every verse in this passage. We have skipped some of the verses. Second Peter 2 and verse 10 this is following along in the same section. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority... They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, they are springs without water, mist driven by the storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. Now, there's the characteristic to watch for. They talk a lot about freedom, but they themselves are in bondage to their own corruption. When you hear someone talking about freedom, you want to be sure you understand exactly what they're talking about. We prize freedom in this nation, political freedom. And we prize freedom from the bondage of sin. But freedom is not just the ability to do anything you want to do without anybody telling you what you ought to do. 
And that seemed to be the idea that the men of Sodom had. Well, the mob eventually pressed against Lot, trying to break down the door in their anger. But then the angels step in with action, supernatural action. They reached out, pulled Lot inside, shut the door, and then they struck the men with blindness. This must have been a special kind of mental blindness. Because if you just had blindness of eyesight, surely you could find the door. That wouldn't be any problem. But they struck the men with some kind of fog where they couldn't even find the door to break it down and come in and vent their anger on Lot. The flight from destruction. Verse 13, we see that the Lord had made his final decision concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Abraham prayed and asked the Lord if he would save the place for 50 people and worked his way down to 10. And now we have been unable at this point to find even 10 righteous people. But he didn't send the two angels to rescue Lot and his family. And very specific instructions were given to this small band of escapees. Verse 17. It came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. Escape. Don't look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains. How did Lot respond? Well, you remember now, these two angels were the only ones in town that had any sense of urgency about anything. Could these guys possibly be for real? I think when your life gets bonded to earthly things, it's very difficult even to follow the simple commands that God gives. This is pretty simple. Escape with your life. Get out of here and head for the mountains. But instead, if you fall in that category... There are always questions, there are always excuses, there are always reasons why we can't do that, and then there are usually some alternative plan B that we might go with, Lord, couldn't we do this? And so, Lot says, now behold, your servants found favor in your sight, and you've magnified your loving kindness, which you've shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to. It is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? With no time to dicker, the angel says, Okay, you get to Zoar and we're not going to do anything until you get there. But it's interesting that in verse 30, Lot was in the mountains anyway, in a cave up in the mountains. Why couldn't he just simply obey what God had told him to do. Why can't I simply obey what God tells me to do? Well, if Lot had converted... Well, in in verse 12, it would appear that there could be as many as eight in Lot's family. If that's the case, we don't know for certain, but if that's the case, then if he had converted only two of his neighbors, the entire city would have been saved. 
Wouldn't that be something if God were making some deal like that on the city in which you lived and you didn't know about it? And you could just convert two of your neighbors. Well, every soul is important. Well, they could have been spared, but see, Lot was caught up in the same earthly mindedness that they were. It just didn't work itself out in the ways that it did for them. And he had lost their respect, I think, and he had lost the respect of his own family. I'm quite sure his daughters didn't have too much respect for dear old dad after what he had suggested, and they soon proved that they had a little respect for their dad. Verse 14, we see the response of Lot's sons-in-law. They thought the whole thing was a big joke. Now, when the day of destruction dawned, the angels were adamantly committed to getting Lot and the remnant out of the town. It was like things couldn't begin until Lot was safely escorted somewhere else. So they urged and they rushed him and Lot lingered. And finally, they had to grab him by the hands and drag him out of the city. This was urgent, but no one recognized that except the messengers from God. Imagine the people of Sodom waking up on fire and brimstone day. Must have been a lovely day, just like every other day. Shops were beginning to open. People were making their way around a little bit, looking for that first cup of coffee to help erase some of the reverie of the night before, hoping that um, today is going to be a better day than yesterday. We'll enjoy some more of the pleasure, whatever that uh, may have been, that they had in mind. Suppose one day a couple of strangers showed up down to the market plots and said, by 10 a.m. this place will be toast. We'd have trouble believing that, wouldn't we? And yet, we have had all the warnings. Here is Leonard Ravenhill. Don't read Leonard Ravenhill unless you have your seatbelt fastened. Sodom had no churches. We have thousands. Sodom had no Bible. We have millions. Sodom had no preachers. We have 10,000 plus thousands. Sodom had no Bible schools. We have at least 250. Sodom had no prayer meetings. We have thousands. Sodom had no gospel broadcasts. As a nation, we're richly blessed with Christian broadcasts. Sodom had no histories of God's judgment to warn it of danger. We have volumes of them. Sodom perished in spite of all these disadvantages. America today is living by the mercy of God. The only reason we are not smoking in the fire wrath of a holy God is mercy. M-E-R-C-Y, prolonged mercy. America as a nation, England shares this too, already has had posted all warning signs. Signs that Sodom lacked. The dice is loaded against America. Well, an interesting little book. Sodom had no Bible. We've had all the warnings. We've had everything. But I wonder if we have heeded the warnings. Verse 23, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 
The twilight of yearning, there comes a time when you don't yearn for the things of the earth any longer. By then, if you don't know Christ, all you're left with are the empty promises that the world has made. Because those promises all end at the point at which you depart this earth. If you don't know Christ, nothing else would count. We noticed in verse 26, Lot's wife was lagging back a little bit. And then she just turned around to look back after having been told not to do so. Why did she turn around to look back? I don't think she thought she was going back. There wasn't going to be anything to go back to. But I think the old home place had a spot in her heart that she just wanted to get one more look. Such a strong place. She just wanted to get one more look because that's where her treasure was. It would be interesting to have been able to talk to some of those people and find out what was really going on. It looked like earthly-mindedness had won the day. She looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Christ said, No man, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus can read hearts. And it might be uh, not that I just uh, want to go back to the things of the world that I left, but it could be that I never really left the things of the world. That on the outside I'm looking pretty good, but down in my heart I'm really committed to the things of this world. Jesus indicates that this story, this account, historical account of Sodom and Gomorrah, is a picture of the final judgment day. And let's read that in Luke 17, verse 28. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who's on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise... No one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Well, General Sutter tried to keep the discovery of his gold a secret, but he was only able to do so for a couple of weeks. And he went back to the job site where the sawmill was almost finished and has found that his workmen had abandoned their task, and they were madly digging and panning and scratching for gold. The whole countryside was in turmoil. Ranches, towns, villages were abandoned, everyone rushing to Sutter's Ranch in search of gold. Telegraph wires hung. Presently, soldiers were deserting the army, fathers deserting from their families, employers from their jobs, farmers from their ranches. Later in the year, it seemed like half the country was camped out on Sutter's Ranch digging for gold. Ships left New York to sail around the southern tip of South America, Cape Horn. And when they landed in San Francisco, sailors would jump ship and head for the hills to get rich panning gold. John Sutter's Ranch began to look like a war zone. The place was ransacked, his barns were torn down, his crops were trampled. His cattle were slaughtered. 
squatters helped themselves to whatever they found, and law and order was swept away by a group of godless men hungry for gold. John Sutter fought back at the time, filing the largest lawsuit in history. He won the suit, but mobs enraged by the court decision burned down the courthouse with its records. Then they burned down John Sutter's ranch house. By 1852, John Sutter was bankrupt. Staggering under these heavy blows, he lost his reason. For the next 20 years, he haunted Washington, D.C., where he tried to persuade members of Congress to recognize his claims on his own land and to pay some uh, damages for what had been done to him. Dressed in rags, he was just a poor, old, demented man walking around Washington. Children laughed and jeered when they saw him coming. In the spring of 1880, Sutter passed away in a furnished room in Washington, alone and despised. He didn't have a dollar when he stepped off this planet. His legal deeds to the greatest fortune on earth were worthless, and his fortune had been stolen by ruthless men. The world had once again failed to deliver on its promise. Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How's the world doing on its promises in your life? Doing pretty good? That's just what Lot's wife was thinking. And closing, let's um, see how we can set our heart free from earthly mindedness with some help from Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs. And we'll run through these quickly. First, guard your thoughts very carefully because everything is coming out of the heart. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things, things which the Scripture defines as honorable and good and just and so forth. And then maintain an humble and contrite spirit. We know a lot of passages that relate to this that we usually use. But here is the prophet Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If I have a broken and contrite heart, God is pleased with that. And that will help me not to become attached in my heart to the things of the world. Third thing, endeavor to set a good example for others. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And this number four relates to that one as well. Consider the matter of giving an account before God one day. And while you're thinking about what you're going to say to God about your boat and your shell collection, think about going out of this life as a great giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And there are all kinds of things that you can give. But if you're going to go out of this life as a great giver, you probably need to form the habit as a young person of being a young giver. 
Then you have an account to give to God. You won't even have to tell him. Here are the things that I have given. Here are the investments that I have made of my life. Investments in people. Investments in the Word. And I like to think there's going to be music in heaven. So we want to talk about investments in godly music. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We won't be standing before God for judgment as to whether or not we are condemned to an eternity apart from Him. But there is the matter of rewards, and there is the matter of eternal investments. So we want to be thinking about that day when we stand before Him. What do we have to offer? And the last one, number five, set the Lord Jesus Christ always before you. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you realize that you've never set Christ before you. He's not there before you because you've never set him before you in your heart, in your conscious thoughts. If some tragedy occurred, you might be swept away like the people of Sodom. Tragedies occur in this world every day. Well, you say, I'm not as bad as they were. How bad do you have to be to qualify as a sinner? If you break God's law in one point, which we do all day, every day in our thoughts, in our heart, then we qualify as sinners. But we have a great Savior. You just need to acknowledge your sin, that you are a sinner, and confess what is wrong in your life. And ask Him to forgive your sin. And ask Him to come in and cleanse your life and take control of your life and give you that new ability to avoid sinning and give you a new attitude toward wanting to do the right thing and wanting to avoid doing the wrong thing. It's a simple thing. As I pray, I would encourage you to pray that prayer along with me. Or if Christ, if you're a Christian, like Lot, but there is some earthly mindedness that has taken root in your heart, this would be a time to begin to get rid of that because God has plans for you and He needs you to have clean hands and a pure heart to be of service to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can come to You, Holy God, anytime, have an audience in Your throne room, any place where we are. And Lord, we come this morning with uh, reverence. We recognize that we are sinful creatures and that we sin over and over even when we don't want to. But we praise your holy name that it's possible that we don't sin as much as we used to. And we look toward becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, we confess 
We need a Savior. We need your cleansing blood in our hearts. And we ask you to forgive our sin. And then, Lord, we ask you to take control of our lives. Root out any vestiges of love for the world that might be there. Lord, we want to love the people in the world and be concerned about their eternal destiny. But we pray you would deliver us from love of the things of this world. Help us to enjoy the things that you have given us. Help us to utilize the things that we have for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we thank you for many opportunities to do that. Lord, it takes discernment. We ask you to give us that wisdom that we need to live in a culture that's being swept away with the world. Lord, there are many things about which to pray. And we ask now that you would guide our thoughts and our prayer as we pray together. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.